Hello everyone, this is R.W. Lee, and you are listening to Evenings in Church History, the goal of which is to connect Christians to their past to influence the future. Let's get started. This podcast is going to kick off a series within a series, if you will, just a quick little two-part overview of two of the main controversies in Augustine's life, and I'm focusing on these two because I think that they are some of the most influential um, as far as uh, in, in, long, in a long-term sense um, in Augustine's life. At first, we're going to look at the Pelagians today. And then next podcast that we do is going to focus on the Donatist controversy. One of these has primarily, I think, theological implications that can speak to issues we deal with even today. And I think that the latter has to do more with some social issues and things that we can glean from Augustine's interactions with the Donatists and things that he could have done better, things that he did correctly. So, um, as I said before, this is the first podcast in our series on Augustine's controversies, and we are going to be diving into the doctrines of Pelagianism. The first thing that we need to consider in coming to Augustine's controversy with Pelagius is the concept of original sin. I think at its core, that's what the Pelagian controversy was really about. Um, Augustine had thought about this, uh, about the nature of sin within man, and in particular, how the fall of man in the Garden of Eden affected um, the rest of mankind. So, just uh, by way of recap, um, the God creates a garden, the Garden of Eden, and he gives a man to keep it and to tend this garden with his wife, Eve, the perfect uh, man and the perfect woman. Um, and these two beings, in the words of Augustine, were not created without the capacity to sin, but rather without or with the ability to not sin. There's an important distinction there, because if they were created without the capacity to sin, then it's not really them who have committed the sin, and, and they wouldn't have been able to uh, sin against God in the first place, and so that doesn't really make any sense. So it is more logical to say that they had the capacity to not sin. They could have chosen to be obedient to God, to live in eternal bliss with Him in the garden, in that perfect union which they shared, and yet they decided to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which then plunges mankind into, uh, into sin. And so even though there was a sense of freedom that was possessed by man, he lost that freedom in Augustine's view. He loses that freedom to not sin. And so now everything in man is corrupted. His, his will is corrupted. His thoughts are corrupted. Not in the sense of um, not, not in the sense of not being able to do anything that is good in, in, a, in a common in a common sense, right? Like someone who is fallen can still, you know, feed the homeless or help someone that's sick or, you know, change a tire on the side of the road or something. But 
the point that Augustine is trying to make is that all of these all of these things are emanating from a will which is ultimately corrupted by God by uh, by sin rather because of uh, Adam's and and mankind's subsequent rebellion against God. A couple of things to note on Augustine's view of original sin. In the first place, when Adam eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3, he is doing so by a sheer act of perfect will. On the one hand, you have a will that is able to not sin, that is able to walk away, but then on the other side, you have the ability to sin. It was possible for him to sin, but it was also equally possible for him not to sin. And so when Adam chooses by an act of will, his will is then corrupted by this sin so that now those, his, those who are his children, so the rest of mankind, all inherit this sinful will, this sin nature in a sense, in which they are unable to do what is good, what is pleasing to God. And more than this, they are guilty of that same sin because they shared an identity with Adam that was directly related to that same will which they now carry in them. So we as human beings carry a sinful will that comes from Adam, but we also carry a guilt for that first sin. So we are born guilty. And this is important in Augustine's view of baptism especially because in Augustine's mind, baptism is the cleansing away of much of this um, sin, much of this guilt, that it is, it is a means in which we can have forgiveness um, just by way of full disclosure, as much as it pains me as a Baptist to admit. Mankind is also enslaved to sin. He is ignorant. He is lustful. He is uh, he is destined towards death, and so because of this, Augustine's view of mankind is not very optimistic. He is not one to think that we are able to follow God perfectly to pursue total obedience apart from an act of grace. In fact, that is exactly what we need, is God's grace in order to do anything that is not sinful. It's the only way to avoid sin because we no longer have this free will due to our sin in Adam, in the garden. Because we are now born with this fallen will, it takes a sheer act of God's grace to pull us up to help us. And as Augustine says, something to this effect, he says, command of us what you will, but will in us what you command. In 409, a British monk by the name of Pelagius, um, one who had gained a bit of reputation while teaching in Rome, moved along with his disciple Celsius to Carthage. And it was there that his fundamental disagreement with Augustine really came to a fore. The difference between Augustine's doctrine of God's sovereignty and grace uh, over and opposed to Pelagius's doctrine of man's free will could be expressed this way. Pelagius thought that man's freedom was something that God had granted to him. It was really underneath the purview of God's sovereignty. God had granted to man a free will and, and the ability to 
know what God's will for his life was. And therefore, a man was to express his free will underneath the, the umbrella of God's sovereign direction. So as God would tell his people how to act, it was their responsibility then to obey. Now, it's important to distinguish between the doctrine of Pelagius and the doctrine of Pelagians in the wider sense. Pelagius himself uh, talked a great deal, but wasn't really interested in the dogmatics of his belief. That was left to one Julian of Eclinum, who uh, was really an architect of Pelagian dogma. At the same time, Pelagius's disciple Celsius sort of took the, his master's um, beliefs and brought them to their logical conclusion, or so Augustine thought. Now, when Augustine had written his confessions, it includes the statement that I said before, that give what you command and command what you will, or something to that effect. Now, Pelagius was shocked, and he was taken aback by this idea, particularly because for Pelagius, the moral life was supreme. It was most important that we as Christians live a moral and upright life before God, and he thought that this view of man's nature was demoralizing. It, re- it detracted from the, the, the goodness of a moral life and uh, the life that God had called his people to live. Instead of having a system of God's ultimate sovereign direction and God's grace over all things, um, and certainly, Augustine did not view things, did not view God as a puppet master. Um, but Pelagius thought that this was the conclusion that Augustine's doctrine would bring. In fact, he said that the key point of his idea was unconditional free will and responsibility. God did not intend to be a authoritarian over his creatures, but instead gave them the ability to accomplish his will. He set before them life and death. In Matthew 5.48, we were commanded to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And Pelagius thought that this was a genuine command, that God would never have commanded us to do something that we were unable to do. In an action, he viewed three specific features. The first of these is the power the second is the will, and the third is the realization. That What's important to understand is that the first feature, power, comes only from God, but the will and the realization come from man. So, it's not as if we are, that man is, is separated or distant or not under God's sovereignty. However, man does have a genuine freedom, and also a responsibility to his creator. It's important to understand this because the, the logical conclusions that have been brought about by Pelagius's followers were very different in, in that respect. But focusing in on the crux of the debate, and as far as Augustine was concerned, this was the central issue. It's important to also differentiate the need for grace in Pelagius's view over and against that of Augustine's view. Pelagius would have affirmed that we need grace every minute, every hour of every single day. But what Pelagius meant when he said grace and what Augustine meant when he said grace 
was were, were two completely different things. In Pelagius's mind, grace was the free will. Um, it was the ability to act freely. It was the revealing of God's law. And then also, because people have distorted this, it is the example of, of, of Christ. It is the law of Moses um, and the teaching of Jesus. And so because of this, these are all graces given to us by God and things that we need every single hour. Augustine, on the other hand, viewed grace as rather the power to act. It is more than these expressions of grace. It is the very ability to be obedient to God's law. This wouldn't have made any sense in Pelagius's view, especially since in his mind, original sin had no place. If man could be held accountable for his forefathers' sins, then why wouldn't one be able to claim the baptism of his ancestors and say that his sanctification was passed on from one member of his family to the other? No, no, it, there's no paternal descent of sin. In fact, man does have a sense of genuine freedom. Grace is given um, equally to every single individual. God is not a respecter of individuals, but instead he allows those who desire to be obedient to be obedient. Not outside of the purview of his sovereignty. God had told us what we need to do and commanded us to obey. But such as he said in Matthew 5.48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Leviticus 19.2, which says that you are to be holy for I am holy. Why would God ask us to do something that was impossible? And so in Pelagius' mind, a Christian's life was one of attained perfection, one that could walk in perfection before God and attain to a spiritual maturity that was completely and totally without sin by virtue of his own work. The dispute between Augustine and Pelagius, as well as his followers, would last for years to come, and some would argue for even years afterwards. But just by way of a summary, let's say that Augustine viewed Pelagius as not acknowledging the sinfulness of the human heart. Romans 5 says that sin entered the world through one man. And in John 3, Jesus makes it evidently clear that you cannot inherit the kingdom of God or even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. In Augustine's mind, Pelagius was not accounting for man's own sinful heart. Given the choice to sin and not to sin, he chooses sin. Even in the garden, man chose sin. Even now, given the opportunity, man will choose to continue to sin, to build on that sin. Therefore, it is only by an act of God's unilateral grace that one can be set free from this bondage of the will. In a way, God looks at, looks at man and predestines him to this saving grace. And it is only by God's own will, God's own action. Man cannot avoid what is evil. He has to be set free from it. And so this is why, in Augustine's mind, all of humanity was a mass or a lump of sin or perdition. That everlasting damnation was all that was left without this grace given to us by Christ. Even a child is born with this same corruption, and one must be set free from it. It is a tragic reality, certainly, 
but one that God has accounted for and one that God has promised to help his people out of. Pelagianism was condemned about the Synod of Carthage in 418 as well as the Council of Ephesus in 431, as well it should have been. Unambiguously, the issue of original sin was the core of the dispute. If man is able to be perfectly obedient to the law of God, then what is the purpose of Christ in the first place? The central tenets of Christianity are the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, if Pelagianism were true, these would be meaningless. And so, in order for one to be saved, one must have something to be saved from. A central expression of this need was, at the time of Augustine, was in baptism. At the Council of Nicaea in 325, the, um, the council had said, I confess one baptism for the remission of sins. By the time Augustine had risen to his, uh, his post as Bishop of Hippo, this had come to mean uh, or come to be displayed through the baptism of infants. And why is that? Well, in a society where infant mortality rates are exponentially higher than we could even imagine, it would make sense that parents would want to have assurance that their children were indeed in the kingdom of God. And this was traditionally at that point done through the act of baptism. And so what turned Augustine on to this central issue was where he heard some saying that baptism was not for the remission of sins, but rather for their sanctification, for the administration of sanctification. And so in order for Augustine to see really the core of this, he saw it most clearly in the act of baptism. Hence is why at the Synod of Carthage, as was aforementioned where Pelagianism was condemned, they said, quote, Anyone who denies that newborn infants are to be baptized, or who says that they are baptized for the remission of sins, but do not bear anything of original sin from Adam, which is expiated by the washing of regeneration, so that as a consequence the form of baptism, quote, for the remission of sins, end quote, is understood to be not true but false in their case, let him be anathema, end quote. This targets, I think, through the act of baptism, what the core issue is. It's not the baptism itself, but the need to be saved. Again, that need to be saved from something, to be brought into right relationship with God. A lot of churches today, we don't really talk much about original sin or about our need for salvation. We speak a lot about love, about God's love, and that's a very good thing because God's love is exponentially greater than anything we could ever ask or imagine. And in fact, God himself is love. And yet, when we fail to look at God as he really is, we fail to see our need to be saved. We view ourselves too highly, even as the Pelagians did. And we begin to think that we have something that we can offer to God. We can't. This debate serves to teach us that God saves us by His own grace, by His own mercy, that there is nothing we can do to merit it, that there's nothing that we can do to bring about our own salvation. Instead, it is all by the sheer work of Jesus Christ on the cross and God's grace that's what this reminds us of, and that's what this directs our attention to, that it is only by grace through faith alone that mankind can be saved. It's not through rights, through obedience, but most importantly, 
It is through God's grace. It is through God's grace. In closing, I just want to say thanks so much for tuning in and for listening. If this is your first episode, that's great. It's great to have you. Feel free to go back and listen to the other episodes to kind of get some context um, for what this podcast is about, what is happening in Augustine's life as we're going through this series. And also, I just want to take a second and say thank you so much for being patient as I sort of figure out this whole podcasting thing. The listenership has gone up exponentially and way more than I anticipated this early. And so I'm very grateful for the positive feedback and for the uh, experience and the um, knowledge that has been passed along to me, ways that I can improve. And so I'm uh, working to implement those things as best as I can. Um, But I I do thank you for your patience and for listening and for recommending this podcast to your friends and family. Um, It really goes a long way. So, uh, and, and if you would like to, feel free to leave a five-star review on your um, favorite podcast apparatus. So, um, thank you again. And, and I just want to say, really, um, thank you for joining me this evening in church history. <laughs>